Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the afternoon sessions. It's my pleasure to introduce my colleague and friend, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who, in addition to being an HIV clinician, is also the chair of the Department of Global Health at the Rollins School of Public Health. And Carlos has done a lot of research on linking HIV-infected patients to care, and he's going to be talking to us today about linkage to care. Carlos? Thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank everybody. Hopefully, we're linking you to the session after lunch, but I'm pretty, pretty sure that some people will be lost to follow up. <laughs> uh, so we will start with an IRS question. So of those who know that they're HIV infected in the U.S., approximately what percentage are successfully linked to care? Okay, well, that's, it's actually, a, the data's a little better than that. It's probably around 60 to 75 percent, depends how you define linkage to care. But in other words, it's a lot lower than you would expect. And this is people that are successfully linked within three months of our HIV diagnosis. So we're going to spend a little time talking about that, because as you all know, <coughs> uh, let's go back. In order to, uh, for a person to successfully benefit from antiretroviral therapy, you've got to get diagnosed, you've got to link them to outpatient care, you've got to start them on antiretrovirals, you have to keep them in care and have them adhere to therapy. And thus, when I hear people talk about test and treat, I try to emphasize to them that, that test and treat is much more than just test and treat. There's really a lot of steps in the process, and I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know this. But I think we need to emphasize that trying to go to a very simple medicalized approach of test and treat is not going to get us where we need to, and especially after uh, hearing Dr. Uh, Treisman talk about the issues with substance abuse that we are dealing with. So... For a long time in the epidemic, we, we placed a lot of focus on adherence to therapy. And I want to emphasize to you, and I want you to leave here thinking that adherence to care is as important to, as adherence to therapy. And in fact, patients that adhere to care are more likely to adhere to therapy. So our adherence efforts really need to focus a lot in adhering to care. <clears throat> so this is data uh, from a study that uh, Ed Gardner and myself and a couple others did, because we were trying to figure out from the data available out there, what is the engagement of people in care in the United States? And basically, if you look at the data, about 75% of individuals are linked to care within 6 to 12 months of diagnosis. About 50%, however, 50% are not engaged in regular care. 25% of those eligible for antiretroviral therapy in our clinics already in care actually are not receiving antiretroviral therapy. And once you receive antiretroviral therapy nowadays, you actually do fairly well. About 80% of people in clinical care who are getting antiretroviral therapy are suppressed. But what that translates to is that maybe around 20% of people with HIV are biologically suppressed. Now, CDC uh, this past year, looking from data from MMP, published an MMWR that I would encourage you to read. It's one of your key readings, and it's, a, it's called Vital Science. And basically, their data from MMP looks pretty similar. I mean, basically... Anywhere between, we calculated 19%, they calculated 28% of people. Of everybody with HIV infection in the United States, about a quarter of them are biologically suppressed. So at the end of the day, we, are, we have a long way to go. And though a lot of emphasis is also put on, well, 20% of people with HIV in this country who are infected don't know it, we need to do more testing, I would tell you that more people who know they're infected are not engaging care or retaining care. So more efforts need to be put in linking people to care and successfully keeping them in care. 
So the, th the three biggest problems with HIV care, the three biggest challenges that we have in HIV care in the U.S. right now are delays in testing, delays in care, and early dropout from care. <clears throat> Look, uh, Dr. Gulick talked about the, the data on, on when do we start antiretroviral therapy, and as you all know, the guidelines now tell us pretty much treat anybody regardless of CE4 count, and there's different levels of evidence. But you can see this data from uh, Kate Bouchard from CDC, basically showing that if you look over the years, since 2002, 2009, so over a decade, the percentage of patients who are entering care in the HOPS cohort hasn't changed that much. There's been maybe a little bit of decrease in people that are on the, the, the CE4 count of 200, but basically the numbers look very similar, pretty stable over time. Now, the data from the NA Accord is a little bit better than that. NA Accord suggests that the proportion of patients that enter care with a CD4 count at presentation of greater than 350 went up from, 80, from 38% in 1997 to 46% in 2007. And the median CD4 count at entry into care went from 256 cells to 317 cells. So the bottom line is even today, the median entry CD4 count in this country still below 350, where for a long time we said everybody needs to be treated. So again, we are not where we need to be. And this data, as, as uh, Dr. Gulick said, puts us second in the world. First is Rwanda. They actually have better CD4 count entering to care than we do. There are a lot of terms that are thrown around, and I'm going to try to define them for you. Linkage to care is a process of engaging newly diagnosed HIV-infected persons in HIV primary care. Entering to care is after HIV diagnosis is a visit with an HIV care provider authorized to prescribing art. Retention and care is attending required provider visits for primary HIV care. And then there's a term used engagement in care, which embodies a distinct but interrelated process of linkage and retention in care. And you're going to read in the literature all these terms being used, and they don't exactly mean the same. So part of the problem we have is what exactly are the investigators looking at and how are they defining it. But basically, when you think about the spectrum of HIV care, you have people who aren't aware of the diagnosis in one end, and you have people who are, are aware of the diagnosis in the other end. And in between there, you have people who, you know, need to be linked to care, receiving care, are fully engaged in care. But this, this linear, supposedly linear relationship is actually not that linear. We know that there's delayed in linkage to care and poor retention in care. And the factors that are primarily associated with that is that they, they lead to, being delayed in linkage to care leads to delay in received antiretroviral therapy. You have higher rates of biological failure in people that are not linked to care. And of course, you have increased morbidity and mortality, which translates in more hospitalizations, more ERVs, visits, et cetera. How big is the problem in the U.S. of delayed linkage to care and failure of linking to care? Well, depending which data you look at, it's somewhere between 30 to 40% of patients diagnosed where the HIV don't see an HIV care provider within six months of diagnosis. Now, timing is a very important issue. In a study published from Boston, the mean time from HIV diagnosis to HIV primary care visit was 2.5 years for a cohort of 203 HIV patients that were seen in Boston. 2.5 years, median time. I mean, I tell people the mean time. I tell people, you know, if I was diagnosed with HIV today, I'll be trying to make an HIV care appointment this evening, and if not, for Monday morning. Many of, our many of our patients have many competing priorities. For them, HIV care is not their number one problem in their life. They have problems with poverty, with substance abuse, 
with trying to get food on their table, trying to take care of their kids, and HIV is simply yet another problem they have to deal with. And therefore, the delay in diagnosis becomes, the delay in, in linkage to care becomes part of what they, what they have. <laughs> North Carolina showed that the delay from diagnosis to entering care was six months in a study that uh, one of our former fellows, Wayne Duffus, did. And in the HICSAS data, about one in three people were delayed more than three months before entering into care. And I mentioned the three months because in data that I'm going to show you later on, the new national HIV strategy is putting that three-month uh, as, as sort of the benchmark that we're going to be measured by. Michael Mungavero uh, published this paper in Topics in HIV Medicine, and I think it really shows the problems that we tend to have continuously. You know, people are HIV diagnosis. Yeah, but the problem is that the big challenge, about 21% of all the infected in the United States are not diagnosed. Then you try to link them to care, and again, there's delay in linkage to care. And we have people that are still, many people, being diagnosed and linked to care at lower CD4 counts. Then we get them to, into care, we try to retain them, but one-third of those who are, who are HIV infected are going to drop out of retention, and finally we get the outcomes out of that. The National HIV Strategy has taken that and put and give us the following challenges. Number one, the strategy is proposing to increase the number of people who are aware of their status from 79 to 90%, and this by 2015. So we've got a couple more years to get this done, but not many. The challenge is going to be to increase linkage to care within three months of diagnosis from 65% to 85%. And when they did this strategy was 65, now it's about 75, 70%, but still, we have a ways to go. The idea is to increase the Ryan White clients in continuous care from 73% to 80%. And finally, to increase the proportion with HIV undetectable viral loads by another 20%. So we are currently at, you know, 25%. We want to go up to about 45%. So again, you can see that the national HIV strategies has set up some very lofty goals for HIV care. And if we really don't understand this continuum and we don't work to make this continuum work, I think we're, we're going to set in, setting us, our, ourselves up for failure in this strategy. <clears throat> Who are the people more likely to not be linked to care? Well, you know them. There are several studies that have looked at this, but African-American women, in particular women who have children at home and who are single moms, uninsured, uh, immigrants, less well-educated, and injection drug users. And somebody's going to say, well, that describes my clinic. And that is, in fact, part of the challenge that we have, that most of our patients now frequently have a lot of these problems that make them be vulnerable to not be successfully linked to care. What are the challenges that we face? Well, one of the big challenges that we sometimes have, for example, within the Grady Health System, is just the ability to be able to provide a newly diagnosed patient with a timely appointment. If we tell somebody, well, you know, we are very busy, we don't have new provider appointments until X number of months, if it's, you know, three months from now, two months, the longer we delay the new patient appointment, the less likely that person is going to be, to link, be linked to care. We need resources for short-term case management, and I'll tell you about the value of case management in the system. We need capacity of the care system to meet the demands of HIV care. And finally, we need the ability to address the comorbidities. We need to be able to work closely with substance abuse, with mental health providers, in order to really integrate these issues, because if you just worry about the HIV care, you're going to miss the boat with the other components. So here's an ARS question for you. Which of the following strategies or intervention has proven to be effective to linking HIV people to care? Short-term case management, cell phone reminders, peer health navigators, access to housing, or all of the above?
Wrong. I'm glad we're giving this talk. The only thing that has proven to be successful to link people to care in a randomized control trial is short-term case management, which is what ARDAS did. And this is the ARDAS intervention that was led by, by CDC, by Lid Gardner at CDC, and basically was a, a multi-center study of which I was one of the investigators that evaluated the brief case management intervention to increase linkage to care. And the principles were empowerment and self-efficacy, ask clients to identify their strengths and assets, and there were up to five case management contacts allowed over a 90-day period. And ARDAS resulted at six months in an increased linkage to care from 60 to 80%, and at six and 12 months, from a, at 12 months people were kept in care, from, went from 50 to 64%. So it not only worked to link to care, but actually worked to retain people in care. And what we found in ARDAS are two things. Number one, the clients that were recruited within 180 days from HIV diagnosis were more likely to enter care, more likely to benefit. So that whole issue about the sooner you are to your HIV diagnosis, the more likely you are to benefit from this intervention. And older clients, those with much outside help, and the non-crack cocaine users were the ones most likely to benefit. So the young, the people that had no support, and crack cocaine users did not do well. And this is the, the ARDAS data basically in one graph showing you very nicely at both in six and 12 months, we were able to show an increase in the people that benefit from the intervention. What CDC did after this, that was efficacy. That was an efficacy trial. CDC then did ARDAS-2, which is an effectiveness study. An effectiveness study was basically to take the ARDAS intervention and implement it in the real world, outside of research setting. So they gave it to health departments, and they said, okay, tell us what, what happens, and to clinics that diagnose people with HIV. And basically 79% of entered care within six months of diagnosis. And you can see that the average uh, amount of time needed to link clients to HIV care was actually relatively moderate. The mean number of case management sessions needed for client was two. And I told you, in artists, they could do up to five, but not everybody needed five. And the mean time, mean time that a case management needed to spend with a client was 5.8 hours. And that led CDC to, to consider the artist intervention a best practice. And in fact, you can go to the website and you can actually download the artist intervention manual. And it tells you this is basically the cookbook of how to do artists. But I think it's really important to realize that this is the only randomized controlled trial showing an intervention to be effective. All the other things that I put there that we think are important, housing, et cetera, et cetera, have never been tested. Now, granted, the case managers in, frequently in artists, that's what they did. They help people get housing. They help them get into care. But it's the case management component that really makes a big difference. The other thing that we found in artists, which is very important, is that those that engage in care, those that benefit from artists, were also more likely to have a decrease in their high-risk sexual behavior. And again, emphasizing that getting people into care is not only good for them because they get into care, they get antiretroviral therapy, they suppress their viral load, but they also actually decrease their high-risk sexual behavior. So there's a benefit of getting people into care and benefit of case management is decreasing high-risk sex. Now, San Francisco has been very interesting in monitoring when people enter care. And San Francisco actually will say is one of those places that has done a very good job. It's almost a Shangri-La of HIV care. Uh, data presented at CROI this year from San Francisco Department of Health shows some data that, in my mind, are very impressive. When they looked at people between 2004 and 2000, uh, 2010, they showed that the number of people who started antiretroviral therapy had a CE4 greater than 350 in San Francisco increased from 365 to 504 cells per microliter at initiation of antiretroviral therapy. And the proportion who started a CD4 count greater than 350 increased from 48% to 92%. So 
So San Francisco really is doing a very good job of finding people early in their HIV diagnosis, getting them into care, and starting managing retroviral therapy. I wish we could say that for the entire nation, but we obviously can't. But I think it's a nice model to follow. At Croy also this year, they showed data that I think is quite significant and remarkable. What they are now monitoring in San Francisco is not, not at what CD4 count do you enter care, but what is the time between HIV diagnosis and actually becoming biologically suppressed? And you can't see it very well in this slide, but basically what they've shown is over the years, the amount of time taking them to get somebody from, from diagnosis to undetectable has rapidly decreased. So again, this integrated system is making a big difference in not only getting people earlier into care, but getting them suppressed at a more rapid rate. Now, San Francisco also has problems, and again, goes back to what we were saying. Who are the difficult populations? In their data, who was more likely to do well? Well, whites were more likely to do well. MSNs were more likely to do well. The non-poor and those diagnosed by a private provider. So in other words, the patients that we were talking about, African-Americans, those who acquired HIV not through uh, 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 MSM sex, and those who are, are not, who are, you know, essentially poor, are more likely to do worse and more likely to not benefit as, as much from getting early into care. As a result of, of the National AIDS Strategy, the Office of National AIDS Policy, ONAP, requested the Institute of Medicine to look at how are we going to monitor this. As you know, there's this strategy goals that I mentioned to you, increasing the number of people engaged in care from 75% to 80%. Well, how are we going to measure that? How are we going to know when we get there? Now that you propose a goal, how are we going to monitor? And it's not simple because we simply don't have one single system in the U.S. to do that. But basically what, the, what this report from the IOM is suggesting is, again, that we need to monitor the number of people linked to care within three months of diagnosis. And what we're proposing in this report is a series of 14 core indicators that need to be followed, but, but also to strengthen the, the CDC uh, monitoring uh, MMP program, medical monitoring program, as a way to actually monitor this HIV goals. And I know MMP, as, as Dr. Gulick showed you, has done some really nice work trying to do this. Well, we're basically saying MMP needs to be supported and needs to be uh, grown and needs to be really looked at as a way that we're going to know that we're getting to where the HIV uh, strategies is asking us to go. Now, linking is important, but I take uh, this article from uh, Carl Liefenbach and Tony Fauci published in JAMA talking about uh, the test and treat strategy and basically saying that it's not only entering care, but actually retaining people in care that's important. So even though the title of my talk was not to talk about retention, I'm going to mention a little bit about retention. And part of the reason I'm not talking a lot about retention is there really is no randomized trials published today nothing shown to be effective in retaining people in care. So the data and retention is a lot less solid than it is in linkage to care. So what do we know about retention? Well, retention is obviously important for the same reasons that linkage is important. But what we know is also that early retention in care is very important. The first year in outpatient medical care is really a dynamic, formative, and very vulnerable period. And we know that poor entry, poor early retention in care is actually associated with delayed antiretroviral therapy and failure of antiretroviral therapy, delayed time to biological suppression, increased high-risk sexual behavior, increased risk of long-term adverse effects, and worse outcomes. So once you get people linked into care, the way they behave in that first year is actually really important. That early retention in care is a very good marker of who's not going to do well. And there's a study that Mike Bugavero published this year from, from, uh, from UAB and basically what he showed is in patients that were able to, to 
the, the early no-shows were a very good predictor of who was not going to do well. So when you start seeing those early dinkas in that first year of care, that is a very good predictor that that person is not going to do well. They're biologically long-term are not going to do well. Again, suggesting that maybe that's a very important time to intervene in people once they're linked to care. So we not only link them, but we actually need to really do an intervention within that first year to keep them engaged in care. And that grade of non-adherence was independently associated with a variety of factors, including an overall cumulative viral load. <clears throat> so the problem is there's really no good gold standard for measuring retention and care. Five commonly used measures are missed appointments, appointment adherence, visit, visit constancy, gaps in care, and, and HRSA has used a, a sort of retention and care definition, which is basically having two appointments over a 12-month period separated by at least three months. So if you, you have two, two medical appointments within 12 months separated by three months, you're retaining care. But you can see that the literature on retention and care is all over the place, primarily because the definitions being used by the authors are very different. Uh, HRSA, through uh, special uh, projects, uh, uh, did a, a, a study, and that study, what they found, is a factor associated with retention and care in that critical period, in that critical first year, were basically uh, discontinuous of drug use, decreasing structural barriers, decreasing unmet needs, and stable beliefs about HIV. So the patient that, you know, really said HIV is important to me, and getting them into drug treatment, getting into mental health, decreasing their barriers were all, all important issues. Again, emphasizing the importance of substance abuse treatment and retention and care. So what is the National AIDS Strategy monitoring? What is the Institute of Medicine report suggesting? Basically that we need to look at the proportion of patients who have two or more visits in the preceding 12 months, at least three months apart. So again, we're endorsing the HRSA definition, and we're saying that needs to be measured and that needs to be monitored, and that's what clinics are going to have to be reporting. Now, a special population that we have been very interested in study is precisely crack cocaine users because they're the ones that not benefit from ARDAS and they're the ones that frequently drop out of care. And in this study that we did here at Grady, we actually found 20% of people who are in the hospital have never been to an HIV primary care. So again, a lot of these patients are in contact with the healthcare system. They're not in contact with the right point of the healthcare system. They're not in outpatient care. They're in the inpatient setting. They're in the ER. So we may need to go to these places and actually intervene in those patients at the hospital in order to get them into care, link them to care, and use the hospital as really as, as that opening window that allows us to get people into care. Dr. Treisman talked about substance abuse and how does this work and how does that interfere. Well, substance abuse is, is very important in HIV care, and I think really we need to emphasize that, that re referring to substance abuse treatment is critical in the management of patients with HIV. It should be seen as, as an integral component of what we do. And a recent article published by Dr. Nora Volko, who's the, who's the director of NIDA, she puts it very clearly. She says, comprehensive, integrated substance abuse treatment ought to be part of HIV care. And I hope that after Dr. Treisman's talk and my talk, you become convinced that if you don't have a substance abuse program in your clinic, you need to be sure you have one that you can refer to close to your clinic or where your patients can go to. At Grady, we have set up a clinic with the, the help of many people in this room to try to get these people who are not retaining care. And this clinic called the Transition Center basically is an integrated model of care. And when we looked at, at what happened to people when they, you can see before they, they entered the, uh, the transition center and after they entered the transition center, you can see the number of months those people were linked to care increased significantly, and the number of, of times that they were biologically suppressed also went from 9% to 42%. So again, 
while this is not a randomized trial, this does suggest that we have things that we can do for these patients. And what's the key to the transition center? Well, mental health, substance abuse, and HIV care are all integrated in one side. A strategy that's being tested in clinical trials is contingency management. And contingency management is essentially a strategy, the systematic reinforcement of desired behaviors or the withholding of reinfor or reinforcement of punishment of undesired behaviors. And again, Dr. Treisman talked about how this works in substance abuse. And this is basically going ahead and paying people to do the right thing. So you, you come to clinic, we do a urine drug screen is negative, we'll give you $5. That's contingency management. It's finding a different way to reinforce a good behavior or, or penalize a bad behavior. And this has been shown to be effective in alcohol and other substance disorders. It has also been found to be effective in cocaine addiction and has been used in other conditions. But there's actually never been a randomized trial testing in HIV care in people with substance abuse. So again, it's a strategy that's being looked at through some NIDA uh, sponsored studies. Now we know there are challenges in getting people into care. And some of those challenges are, are patient and provider level challenges. At the patient level challenges, well, you know, Changing behaviors is really difficult. I mean, if, I, if a patient has not had a structured life before they got HIV, and in fact, that was part of the reason why they got HIV, why do we think that's going to change after they get HIV? I mean, part of the problem is, is, is who we're working with. This is their behavior to begin with. So the patient who wasn't able to adhere to medication is not going to be able to adhere to clinical care. I think we need to you know, improve trust, communication, and decrease stigma. Many patients don't want to come to clinic because they don't want to be reminded about their HIV. They don't want to be seen in an HIV care environment by others that know them. And we need to remove structural barriers on unmet needs. And again, reducing substance abuse is an important component. At the provider and system level, we also have some challenges. I think uh, provider communication and decision-making style are important. I think appointment scheduling is an issue. I mean, the idea of the transition center is precisely open access. You just need to show up as long as you're not, you know, too drunk or too stoned, we'll see you. I think it's important that the patient, you know, doesn't need to keep a schedule in order to access this type of care. Extended clinic hours. Our clinics work, you know, in very design hours, 8 to 5 or 8 to 4.30 or 8 to 3 or whatever a clinic decides to, to work at. Some of the patients may benefit from our clinic. They don't wake up until 10. Maybe we need to get a clinic that starts noon through midnight or something of that sort. So this, the, the, thinking about the clinic hours and how do they best address the population, nobody has really looked at. Um, Having accurate contact information from your patients. Uh, one of my outreach persons that works with me in research, finding HIV-infected crack cocaine users not in care, when we find them in the hospital, he's taught me that the most important thing is not necessarily their name or where they live. The most important piece of information are three. Number one, who's the person that they would call or go to when they get in trouble, like when they're in jail or something like that? Number two, what is their nickname? And number three, where they usually hang out. Because he can find people by those three things. He can really, you know, if Johnny usually hangs out at the bridge, you know, by I-20 and, and near the stadium, he can go to that place and say, hey, has anybody seen Johnny here or whatever their, their nickname is. And that's a very useful way to find people. I think this defragmenting health insurance and healthcare system, the, the way that our system is so fragmented, it's a huge challenge for patients. If any of you has ever been a patient and realized how complicated healthcare system is, well, imagine if you are a patient with HIV who is uninsured, uneducated, you know, with mental health and substance abuse issues. You are not going to be able to navigate the system. The system is incredibly complex. And, and, and I think that's part of the problem that we have. And finally, uh, do we need to look at the way we, we deliver HIV care? Do we really need to think about changing the way we're, we're delivering HIV care? 
HIV has been very dynamic, has been able to change over time many times. Maybe it's time to change again. The population has changed. The challenges are different. How do we restructure HIV care? Now, there's another component that you'll hear talked about, which is re-engagement in care. Is the person that has been adequately engaged for a long time and all of a sudden drops out of care? Is the person that has been doing well for a year, for two, for three, and they drop out of care? How do we, uh, how do we re-engage them in care? And I think this is a much, even much less studied than linkage or retention in care. Uh, and the typical focus are, you know, patients with long-term HIV care who are lost to follow-up. I think very little is known about them. And there are a couple of first demonstration projects looking at that. But a major issue is two major populations that are at risk of re-engagement re are recently incarcerated and recently hospitalized. I think a person that has recently gone to jail is at huge risk of, of sort of being lost after that. They've been engaged in care. They've been doing fine. They get thrown in jail, and they, they don't get linked back to care. So I think that's another opportunity to intervene is, is working with our, with our uh, correctional system. And again, you know, not only are we the winners in the world in the number of people that, that prescribe narcotics for our patients, we're also number one in the world, and we're the country in the world that incarcerates a higher percentage of the adult population. So the U.S. is great at putting people in jail. So that obviously leads to less retention and less engagement in care. So we need to remember that, that we need to work closely with our, with our correctional system. And this is not usually jail. This is not usually prisons. This is actually jails where people circle in and out all the time. In a recent study we did with about uh, 400 people who had never been, you know, who are out of care, basically, we found that 89% of them in the had ever in their life been incarcerated. And in the past 12 months, 66% of them have been incarcerated. Again, emphasizing why they got out of care, what made them drop out of care. Jail was an important thing. And the other one, hospital hospitalizations that I talked to you about. <laughs> Finally, I want to point to some new guidelines that have appeared. If you haven't seen this, the Annals of Internal Medicine published guidelines for entry into care and retention in care, as well as antiretroviral adherence. And Dr. Melanie Thompson was, uh, was the, the lead author on this paper. And what this paper looked at the literature and said, okay, what are the recommendations for entry into care and retention in HIV care? And basically what they recommend is systematic monitoring of successful entry into HIV care recommended for all individuals with HIV. And I think this is pretty simple. And at the, at the, at the national level, at the local level, you know, the state health department ought to be able to say, we got this people diagnosed with HIV. We need to be able to answer the question, okay, of those that you got reported diagnosed this year, how many linked to care within three months? And those that didn't link, how do we go ahead and find them and get them into care? We need briefs, you know, strengths-based case management for individuals with a new, new HIV diagnosis. And, again, that's the artist intervention. Uh, Intensive outreach for individuals not engaged in medical care within six months of a new HIV diagnosis. And, again, that's a level C recommendation, which is basically, you know, we think it's important, but it's never been tested in a randomized trial. And the use of peer or paraprofessional patient navigators also is an important way to navigate the healthcare system. And, again, peer navigators have been tested in cancer, but they have never been tested in HIV care. So we think it's important. It's a level C recommendation, but has never been tested in a randomized trial. So in conclusion, one of the benefits of, of engagement in care? Well, we know for the individual it's improving initiation of, of, of antiretroviral therapy and improving adherence. It leads to better immunological and virological outcomes and lower mortality. But also as a result of 052, we know very clear that this is important for society. Engaging people in care, retaining them in care, is actually going to lead to reduce HIV transmission, not only by reducing virological uh, 
uh, transmission because we have them undetectable, but actually because we've shown in artists that linkage and engagement in care were associated with decreased sexual risk behaviors. I want to end by pointing you to those guidelines also that WHO has recently published. We don't have similar guidelines here from CDC, but WHO, uh, but they're thinking about it. They're actually having a meeting about this uh, next week. But basically, what WHO is telling us is the most common way people get HIV infected is by, by having a sex with an uninfected individual. And most frequently, this is a partner, this is a couple. And they have issued guidelines for couples HIV counseling, testing, and treatment. And I think this is something that we need to also think about doing in the U.S. We have been very vertical in our system as, as a, a person that works with, with us who has been doing couples counseling and, and MSM couples says, you know, he's been a counselor for years. And what he saw is when, when a couple came in to get tested, they were told, you go into that room and you go into that room. And they're both giving the results individually. How can we re-engineer the system to have them be in the same room, be able to give them the results together, be able to plan a strategy to keep them both uninfected, or if one of them is infected and the other one isn't, how do I, again, use the strategies that we now have in order to reduce the risk of transmission between them? So in conclusion, engagement in HIV care is increasingly recognized as a critical step in patient outcomes. Linkage and retention are interrelated but clearly distinct processes. And early missed visits can identify patients at high risk of poor outcomes. And just like we've gotten used to discussing medication adherence for our patients, we now need to start discussing clinic adherence to our patients. A patient that, you know, missed an appointment at DINCA is actually a, somebody that we need to talk to and say, why is going on? What's happening? What can we do to prevent that from occurring? I want to thank people that helped me by contributing slides and data for this presentation. Mike Mugavero, Tom Giordano, Mopley Doss, Lisa Match, Lit Gardner, Rafael Sauter, and Wendy Armstrong, and thank the founders of the studies who have worked with us for over a decade, the CDC, NIDA, and the C4. Thank you. Great. Great. Thank you very much, Carlos. Um, a couple of things that immediately come to my mind as I uh, work through this is, you know, there's so many things that are unique, at least in terms of their focus in HIV, but aren't part of the general lexicon or focus in general medicine, for example. I, I remember being an intern, and when somebody didn't show for a clinic visit, I went, yay, one less person to see. <laughs> um, so now we're sort of getting all upset about that. And I think about that. I think about medication adherence um, and those types of things. Are there other disciplines in medicine that you're aware of that focus on visit adherence as much as we have been over the last three to five years? No, I think if you look at the literature, and this could be no different from diabetes oh, care, and from hypertension care and any other chronic diseases, there hasn't been. They're beginning to do this, and I think HIV is, again, leading the way in, in looking at this and highlighting the importance of this. They, they haven't done as much, you know, what is the, if you, if you look at the literature and say, what is the linkage between a new high glucose and, and being in care, you can't find data on that, you know, for diabetes. So I think that, that is an important issue. And increasingly, when we're looking at chronic diseases, of which HIV is just another chronic disease, which happens to be, you know, transmissible, this is an important issue and something that, that I think in medicine we're going to have to be more focused on. And again, emphasizes the whole issue of, of systems integration and really making sure that we actually have a system that talks and that, that works together in, in making sure that people actually link and retain. Dr. Carlos, uh, we have a question. Ooh, okay. We have a question from Frustrated in Savannah, which says, how are we going to fund all this? I mean, why, when there's ADAP waiting lists, you know, 
cutbacks everywhere. How do you fund what needs to be done? You, you move to Atlanta and everything. Well, there. no, I think, I think there are two, I think fairly two issues. I think, number one, we need to look at what, we, what, uh, what we're spending money on and decide what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I mean, if, if, if artists is a, is a proven, you know, evidence-based intervention, we need to have funding from CDC and from Ryan White and other funders for the evidence-based intervention. If there are other things that are not evidence-based, we shouldn't be funding them. So I think part of it may be just rearranging the chairs and the deck of the Titanic, but part of it may not may be more efficient use of resources. And I think that's an important component. We need to do a better job with the resources we have and redirect them in a more, in more effective way. Some of the things that we may be spending money on may actually not be as useful. Maybe, you know, we don't need as many people doing adherence counseling. We need more people linking and retaining people in care. So rethinking, I mean, going to say, let's, if we have the same resources, how would we use them today? I think it's going to be important. But the other is that you're going, getting to is, is we're already stretching our clinics. And my God, you know, if I tell my clinic, we're going to try to increase linkage to care in the clinic by 30% and increase retention by 30%, I'm not sure who's going to see those patients. And that's the other component that I think the biggest resource of which we have a major problem is human resource to see these patients. And I think that is a, you know, when I look across the room, and I'm sorry to say that I'm in the same category, we're all looking older. I'm not seeing younger people coming into HIV care. I look at our fellows, and they're interested in HIV care. Young people coming in, they're interested in HIV care in Africa. They somehow not interested in HIV care in America. And quite frankly, I blame CDC and the federal government for that. They put a lot of emphasis in going overseas, the epidemic overseas. It's a huge epidemic, but we've forgotten the domestic epidemic. And I think we need to reemphasize that we have a serious epidemic in this country. We have a million patients with HIV in this country. We ought to be take, able to take care of that disease right here. I'm going to start using hair dye, and that will help me be younger. <laughs> Andy. Uh, well, I was going to stand up and try to ask a different question, but Carlos just threw the glove down. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's very interesting. I really appreciate your talk. It was a very nice talk, Carlos. Um, the issue of adherence is, of course, has a long history. And, and as you said, that uh, uh, it, it, it has been around a long time. It was an issue in TB care already in the 1950s. Wallace Fox began to be concerned about adherence as soon as uh, domiciliary care was demonstrated as feasible in Madras in 1955. Uh, TB has thought a lot about adherence, and much of what it's thought about in this regard uh, has been useful to the HIV community. At the same time, much of it has been... Uh, uh, the HIV community has helped teach TB a lot about this because uh, uh, we've learned that whenever things aren't going right, the first thing to think about is adherence. Uh, in that regard, I can remember a time not so distant when our primary HIV clinic here in Atlanta uh, took the, uh, uh, communicated the requirement for, for patients that they had to be uh, adherent with appointments, etc., and they just didn't have time or staff to focus on people who didn't show up. And that's very different from the viewpoint you've expressed today, which is a very public health viewpoint, which is those are the people that we better go out and find because they're the ones who are going to continue spreading the disease. It's the same concern we've had in TB, but of course in TB we have the luxury that we only have to hang on to them for six or nine months in order to deal with the problem. This is a lifelong problem. 
And what you've suggested is shifting the whole medical model to a public health paradigm involving infectious disease. And that may mean reorganizing the chairs a lot. And so I wonder if you want to comment no, on I, sort of I, that, I, that public health approach. I agree with exactly what you're saying. I think that HIV being a transmissible disease and being what it is, I think we have a lot to learn from TB, which went to this more public health approach with, you know, dots and, and, and going to the home. And I really think, for example, if you start getting people diagnosed at a higher CD4 count and they're asymptomatic and doing well, why do we need a physician to see them? They could probably, or even a, a well-trained nurse practitioner, a PA, they need somebody with very little training to do their antiretrovirals. They're probably going to do very well, and maybe they'll need somebody who knows with knowledge for the first year or so. And I think that's also an important lesson to learn from Africa. I think one of the things that we benefit from PEPFAR and the programs in Africa is we learn a lot about task shifting. And I think, you know, one of the things that I asked at a meeting not too long ago with Debbie and others who they were talking about what the great things that PEPFAR has done is I said, you know, I just want to find out what do we need to do to make Georgia a PEPFAR country? Because we would really do very well if we became a PEPFAR country. Tax shifting and other things that will need to happen that we need to learn. So I agree with you. I think we need to rechange the model that we have in care. But I will tell you, in this state, until very recently, you know, for example, mid-levels, we're not able to prescribe without having a provider, let alone somebody who's not even a mid-level. So in conclusion, then, just let me do point out that CDC doesn't fund medical care. That's a Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, charge, and it's the way we're organized. So that uh, if we move into a public health model, CDC is involved in that funding. Uh, if we stay in the current medical care model, then we're looking at different sources within the government. But, but, but I agree with you, but I think HRSA and CDC are part of the Department of Health and Human Services. So we're talking about the same agency, and I think what we need is, is having both HRSA and CDC think about this not medical care or public health care. It really is, is that continuum of care that needs to be established, and I think that's part of the reorganization that needs to happen. If what you're suggesting is that HRSA ought to be made part of CDC, that's, <laughs> I, I think that's a very interesting thing. Okay. But they are distinct Yeah, agencies. no, I wouldn't say that in D.C., though. <laughs> Okay. Uh, how about discussing partner confidentiality? You mentioned that business. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's important. I think, I think partner confidentiality, you know, I think we've, we've gone too much in, in, in the idea of, of, well, you know, this is individual information. You need to know it. But when you're talking about a transmissible agent and transmissible disease, again, a lot of the public health model has been, you look at syphilis and other diseases, it's gone to the model of partner notification. So in order to be able to do this, I mean, if you think about it, if you have an HIV-infected partner and you aren't infected and you know about this, <laughs> wouldn't you be the first one wanting to be sure, and you know the results of 052, wouldn't you be the first one trying to ensure that your partner took their medications regularly and adhered to care properly because you know that actually is associated with decreased risk of transmission? I mean, I would. But if you don't know, then it doesn't, you know, you, don't, you, don't, you can't act on, on things you don't know. So I think confidentiality, while important, there are certain things that, that simply could be kept within that, that environment. But our, our laws are very, you know, very, I mean, we talk about HIPAA, we talk about many other things, but then we want people to, you know, it's important for you to let your partner know about the infection. How many people, you know, we, when we ask in care, how many pe people in care having, you know, have sex with, with partners with unknown serostatus? And many of those partners with unknown serostatus would in fact be infected. So I think talking about a sexually transmitted disease, it really becomes important that, that confidentiality, that in a way, between that partner, it kind of disappears in order to help each other and to protect that person from being infected. Laurie? 
I just feel the need to add one caveat to that, which is domestic violence. Huh. What we see is, a, is one of the main barriers for women protecting themselves is domestic violence. And we also see sometimes intentional infection by the perpetrator as a tool to keep them in the relationship. So I think we just have a real need to throw out that no. caveat. I, I, I would totally agree with you. And in fact, in a, in a workshop that I'm doing later next month, I actually have a case like that in which a woman who's in domestic violence and, and with a partner who, you know, who takes her medications irregularly and then comes home, you know, uh, drunk or stoned and beats her up and then has sex with her, you know, I think that would be an ideal candidate for, for PrEP. I think that woman needs a, a, something that she can control to prevent her risk of getting infection. And I think that would be a person that, while their data may not be great, but the data is pretty good from, the, from what Dr. Kellum presented, that that woman would probably benefit from taking pre-exposure prophylaxis. So, Carlos, one of the questions is, won't a nationalized healthcare system or universal health insurance solve most of these problems? Uh, yes, but I don't sit in the Supreme Court, so I, I, can't, uh, I can't vote on that issue. I, I think that what we need, clearly the Affordable Care Act is going to make a difference in trying to bring some people who are not in care into care. But, but I think at the end of the day, we don't have a healthcare system. I mean, we don't have a way to, I think the VA, for example, has a healthcare system. And, you know, if I see a patient today in clinic and the patient says to me, oh, I also been in care at whatever other clinic, Mercy Mobile or DeKalb, there's no way for me to know what they prescribe over there, what their viral load is, have they been undetectable, are they linked to care over there, yes or no. I need to, you know, get them sign a release, get faxed a copy of the medical records, and it's going to take some time. I think if we had a system like the VA that, you know, Dr. Rimblin proudly says, I can enter the computer and know where the patients are and what their viral loads and medications are, I think that makes a big difference. And if you look at the outcomes in the VA, they are way better than the outcomes that we have as a country. So another question uh, about the artist's uh, study. Does it address the efficacy of hand-holding, that is, getting the patient from the community into the clinic? Did they address that? Is there any kind I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not a case manager, but I think a lot of the case management is that hand-holding, is that, that helping the individual sort for some difficult situations. And when we were doing artists, I used to tell my, my case manager, I'd say, you know, this was a drug study. We would be testing a drug versus a placebo. You are the drug in the study. So, you know, if, if, the, if the case manager is not good at doing what she does, then the intervention is, or he does, then the intervention is not going to work. So you need a case manager that, that knows what they're doing and is committed and can do a good job. The gentleman from the VA, <laughs> Dr. Rimlin. Dave Rimlin at the VA. Actually, I just got off my computer to find out about a patient. Uh, going back to what you were saying, Michael, in terms of uh, personnel and, you know, less people getting into HIV, one of the issues, I think, We've spent many, many years making HIV exceptional in terms of only the ID people could take care of them. Now that we really have, in many ways, a much easier disease to handle as a chronic disease in people that have many comorbidities that really need a good internist, we're trying to figure out how to get people back into a different type of care. And this is something that's really being talked about a lot within the VA in terms of how do we get HIV care back into general internal medicine and the primary clinics. And it's very hard because we've spent so much time saying that it's very difficult and we have all these complex things that only we can take care of. Any thoughts? No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that, again, what Dr. Treisman said, you know, I train an ID and nobody trained me in mental health and substance abuse. And, in fact, that's a major component of what I need to do. And, 
and lipids and, you know, that I went into ID because I didn't want to take care of lipids now happens to be what I need to do. So I think that, that who the HIV provider is, I think it's less important what their specialty training is. I think we need somebody who is an HIV provider who can do all those different things. And whether you call that an internist, whether you call that a generalist, whether you call that a family physician, or you call that the HIV specialist, whatever you want to call it, that's what that person needs to be. But it, but it should not just be an infectious disease provider that can give antiretroviral therapy because they may know a lot about the resistant mutations, but they may know very little about all the other components of HIV care. And probably not only maybe not know, but care very little about the other components. So the training, I mean, if I was running an HIV fellowship, which we don't have one, I would make sure that the people get months, you know, of, of substance abuse uh, uh, training and months of mental health and other components of what really HIV care is. Okay. All right, thank you, Carlos.